This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7, looking this evening at verses 1 through 10. It's page 1004. A few Bibles. While you're turning there, a bit of old Peachtree lore. Some of you may remember this. Back in the uh, 90s, I was preaching a series of studies in Hebrews, and uh, Sunday mornings, we had, uh, about the time we were studying Melchizedek, we had a cat show up, and since we didn't know where he'd come from, someone named him Melchizedek, or Mel. Anyway, he stuck around for a little while. We used to have a lot of cats show up, living, mostly. Uh, Mike Brock will recall one we found that was not, one Sunday morning when I got here to the church. Uh, I don't know if it's because we cut the trees farther back when we built this building, but it used to be there were a lot of cats hanging around here. I don't know why. Um, I haven't seen any in a while. But yeah, Melchizedek the cat was, was, was here for a while. Well, cat or no cat, we're going to look tonight at Hebrews chapter 7, uh, first part of the chapter 1 through 10. So we begin uh, looking at this chapter, and it's teaching about Melchizedek. When we will pick up in, uh, in, in chapter 7, verse 1. Hear the word of God. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received priestly office, have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage and ask for your grace as we study it tonight. Uh, Jesus, you said apart from Uh, Me, you can do nothing, and Lord, we certainly acknowledge that as we come to the Scriptures, and we pray not uh, so much a matter of form, but out of desire that you would help us to understand your Word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In the study of the Bible, a type 
refers uh, to typically an Old Testament person or practice or ceremony that has a counterpart or an antitype in the New Testament to which it points. Uh, the type is, uh, while it's historical, it's real, uh, is also symbolic, pointing forward to something else. Uh, even though it's God-given, it is, it is temporary, pointing forward to something that is permanent. The whole study of types and typology, or, or any types in Scripture, is called typology, the study of types that you find in the Old Testament that point to or are fulfilled in the New, usually in Christ. Just a few examples. Uh, the bronze serpent in Numbers chapter 2, Moses God commands Moses to set up this serpent when they were biting the people, they were dying. And what they had to do was look at the serpent and they would live. So it was a type of Christ being lifted up on the cross. In fact, John tells us that in John chapter 3, just as Moses lifted up the serpent, so Jesus was lifted up. Uh, of course, the sacrificial lambs, the animals that were sacrificed, were also a type of Christ, who was the Lamb of God, who was sacrificed for our sins. Well, in the same way, Melchizedek is also a type of Christ. Now, the Bible doesn't give us a whole lot of information about him, and, and places where he is referred to uh, are often uh, are repeating other information. Until we come here to Hebrews, it actually a lot more is made of Melchizedek. Uh, we find information about him in Genesis chapter 14 where you have the account earlier in chapter 14 of uh, Lot being rescued. Abraham rescues Lot uh, by rounding up uh, men, going after those who had taken him, defeating them in battle, and uh, rescuing Lot. And it's coming back from that battle that Abraham encounters uh, Melchizedek. You can read about this in, in Genesis 14. Just briefly read that account. Uh, verse 17, after his return from the defeat of Kedileomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abraham by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abraham, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I've lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap of anything or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I've made Abraham rich. Now, you know, Sodom, the kind of city it was and all of that. Well, Abraham won't take anything, uh, so he won't have any credit where Abraham is concerned. Uh, he says, I'll take nothing but the young men have eaten and the share of men who went with me. Well, that's that's Melchizedek. That's what, what, what the writer here is referring to. And he occurs again in Psalm 110. And then he occurs uh, where he's mentioned in chapter 5 and then here in chapter 7. So that's what we have of Melchizedek. And again, much more is said about him here than anywhere else, even where he occurs in Genesis chapter 14. Well, first, the writer to the Hebrews mentions Melchizedek back in chapter 5, verse 10, talking about Jesus became a source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. 
being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. But then the writer of the Hebrews takes off on sort of this, this rabbit trail, this kind of sidebar, uh, about the low level uh, of those to whom he was writing. Uh, in fact, perhaps not only uh, were they at a low level, they apparently had been doing better and have kind of fallen back their need for maturity, their need to make progress in the Christian faith. Uh, but then also that great warning that we've looked at about the concern of their possibly even going into apostasy, and the, the, the danger of that, uh, even for those who appear to be genuine, real, born-again, truly regenerate Christians, uh, which I think is the reason he, he heaps up all of those descriptions to, to make the point. He's not just talking about someone who's obviously nominal. He's talking about those who appear to be real believers need to take this warning seriously but at the same time, his confidence of better things in their case, and certainly of God, who has made promises and sworn by himself. Well, at the end of chapter 6, he comes back full circle, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a priest, high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And whether they're mature enough to understand all this, or whether we are, he then proceeds to go ahead and teach about Melchizedek in chapter 7. And so let's look at what he has to say. Uh, admittedly, Melchizedek is something of a mysterious figure. Uh, some uh, have suggested, uh, even based on what's in verse 3, that he was an angel in human form. Uh, however, that doesn't seem to fit Genesis 14. He's acknowledged to be a human being. He's a king, a priest. Uh, others suggest maybe he was actually Christ in a pre-incarnate appearance. But the problem is verse 3 says that he resembles the Son of God. He's like the Son of God, but it doesn't say he is the Son of God. And if he is the Son of God, he wouldn't be a type. He'd be the Son of God, right? So those, those don't seem likely. It seems best just to understand him as a, a historical person, a human being, whose ministry, whose life, whose, whose priestly work is a type of that of Christ that the Scriptures pick up on. Uh, and by the way, one other thing before we actually look at the text in a little more detail, kind of dig into it. The whole teaching about Melchizedek itself, I think, points to the inspiration and the unity of Scripture. Uh, because you have this reference to Melchizedek, which is fairly obscure in Genesis 14, if he were never mentioned again, we probably would have a hard time placing him. He'd be one of those names that just sort of, oh yeah, maybe, you know, would come out in a Bible trivia uh, match or something. Oh yeah, Melchizedek. A thousand years later, roughly a thousand years later, he comes up again, mentioned in the Psalms. And then about another thousand years later, he comes up here in Hebrews. You know, what is it with this guy? You know, we hardly know anything about him, and yet he seems to be very important. So I think that does point to the unity, therefore the, the inspiration of Scripture. As far apart as they are in Scripture, as far as, far apart as they are in time, that they all point to uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's just interesting that someone so seemingly mysterious and obscure is at the same time seemingly so important. Well, as we look at these verses 1 through 10, uh, the writer, first of all, just presents the superiority of Melchizedek's priesthood. Talks about why it's superior. 
But then he also offers a few proofs why he says that, why this is in fact the case. So let's look at what he says just a little bit about the superiority of Melchizedek's priesthood in verses 1 through 3. First place, he says it's universal. It's not a national priesthood, but it's a universal priesthood. This Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Now, Melchizedek came before Moses, came before the Aaron and the descendants of Aaron and the, the whole Levitical priesthood, the priests who are a part of the tribe of Levi, descendants of the tribe of Levi. Uh, because of that, his priesthood is a bigger priesthood than theirs. Theirs was very much a national priesthood, very much a part of Israel itself. Uh, he was not of the tribe of Levi. Melchizedek was not because, of course, Levi hadn't even been born, wasn't even around. He's simply described as a priest of the Most High God. He's not even described as a priest of Yahweh. God's covenant name with Israel. His priesthood seems to be sort of a meta-priesthood. It's bigger than Israel. It precedes Israel and functions in a, in a more universal sense. The name, Most High God, El Elyon, God, Most High, uh, is, is a more generic name for God than Yahweh, the covenant name of God. And so whereas the Levites served as priests of Yahweh within Israel, a national priesthood, Melchizedek's was more of a universal priesthood. It was not bound by a nation. It was not bound by the, the later Levitical structure. Well, in the same way, Jesus' priesthood is, is like that. Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek, not Levi. In fact, Jesus wasn't even a Levite. Uh, and so the comparison is made here. Jesus' priestly work is, is not limited to the nation of Israel, ethnic Israel, national Israel. It's bigger than that. It transcends that. He's the Messiah, not just for Israel, but for the world. And so that seems to be the emphasis here in the first verse, priest of the Most High God. He is a priest of God uh, as God, not just as the covenant God of Israel. Uh, and like that, it, it, he's a type of Christ who is a priest both for Jews, yes, but also for Gentiles, for the nations, for whoever puts their faith in him. It's also a royal priesthood. The Levites in Israel were subject to the king. Uh, they, they had their specific responsibility in the conduct of worship, the offering of sacrifices, uh, things that the king himself could not do. Uh, and yet, as citizens of Israel, they were subject to the rule of the, of the king himself. They were set aside as a first fruits to God, a special class to be sure, but still under the authority of the king. They were not kings. But Melchizedek was a king, king of Salem. Uh, he's referred to several times as a king. Um, and we read in, in, uh, in chapter 14, what we read earlier in Genesis 14, that he is a king, the king of Salem, which was the ancient name for Jerusalem, Salem. Uh, he was a king. Uh, Melchizedek ruled over what would one day be Jerusalem, the city of David, the place where the temple would be. 
yet well before that time, he was a king over Salem, king over Jerusalem. Now, in Israel, the role of the king, the role of the priest were two separate, distinct roles. And yet, the prophets prophesied of a priest king. Zechariah uh, 6.13 says, It is he who will build the temple of the Lord. He will be clothed with majesty. He will sit and rule on his throne, and he will be a priest on his throne. The harmony between the two. Uh, Psalm 110, which David mentions Melchizedek, also looks forward to the Messiah who will be both priest and king. But Jesus was, right? Prophet, priest, and king. All three of those offices now bound up in the person of Jesus that were separate in the Old Testament. Well before that, Melchizedek is both a king and a priest. So in that way, it's a royal priesthood and prefigures that of Christ, in which the two are bound together in Christ. Jesus is the king who rules over his people, yes, but he's also the priest who intercedes for them before God. Melchizedek's priesthood was also a righteous and peaceful priesthood. Uh, there was no permanent righteousness or peace related to Aaron's priesthood and to the Levites. Uh, they weren't permanent. That's why they had to be continually offered uh, again and again. And, and the writer of the Hebrews will pick up on this later. But they provided no permanent forgiveness, no permanent atonement, no permanent peace. God honored the sacrifices. He instituted the sacrifices. But the sacrifices were more of a teaching tool than they were an actual atonement for sin. I mean, they they signified that. They taught the principle that the soul that sins shall die, uh, that uh, that the wages of sin is death, of grace and God providing a substitute to die in the place of the sinner. But, of course, the animals themselves could not atone for a human being. Uh, they could not in themselves give that peace with God that ultimately only Christ could give. And they really were never meant to. They pointed forward to something bigger. However, Melchizedek, as, as the writer of the Hebrews makes much of his name here, was a king of both righteousness and peace. Uh, he talks about his name. The name Melchizedek, if you break it down, is a... Is a uh, uh, compound word in Hebrew, the two words for a king, uh, Mel, Melki, uh, the Hebrew word Melech is king, like Abimelech, that Melech I mean, is the Hebrew word for king. Uh, and uh, the Zedek part, uh, Melki Zedek, Zedek is uh, uh, the Hebrew, from the Hebrew word for righteousness. And so his name means king of righteousness. And the writer of the Hebrews is picking up on that to talk about it. But he's also, of course, by title, the king of Salem. Salem means peace. It's related to the Hebrew word shalom, peace, Salem. It's kind of an English version of shalom. Uh, but it means peace. He's the king of the city of Salem, or peace. So he's king of peace, but his name means king of righteousness. And the writer of the Hebrews is, is making much of that. He's first, by translation of his name, this is verse 2, king of righteousness. Then he's also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. And that's the order. Righteousness, peace. That's what the Levitical priesthood ultimately could never give. 
Uh, the writer of the Hebrews is, is admittedly playing off of the name and the title of Melchizedek, pointing out, though, that in his name, uh, he points forward to Christ, who alone provides righteousness before God, which gives us peace with God and peace before God. And so he's making that just that comparison based on his name, that in that way he points forward to Christ. Uh, his name points us forward to Christ, who gives us righteousness and peace, who is the king of righteousness and the king of peace. His priesthood was also personal, not hereditary. It was bound up just in, in who he was. And we see this as well. Uh, verse 3, he's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now, that was not true of the the, the Aaronic Levitical priesthood. That was based on descent. If you were part of that tribe, you're part of the priesthood. Uh, however, with Melchizedek, that was not the case. His was personal. It was based on he himself. He just seems to come out of nowhere. The Bible gives no record of his lineage. Uh, the point is they're irrelevant to his priesthood. It doesn't matter who his people are. God appointed him a priest. Priesthood is his, not based on who his father or grandfather were or anything like that. In the Levitical priesthood, that descent was everything. With Melchizedek, it meant nothing. He didn't know where he came from, but he was a priest appointed so by God. And that's what the writer's picking up on. Jesus, the same way. Uh, he's a priest in the order of Melchizedek, but not Levi. Again, he was not a Levite. Which tribe was Jesus from? Remember? Judah. Yeah, yeah. He wasn't even from the priestly line. And so the writer of the Hebrews is picking up on that simply to point out that like Melchizedek, Jesus' priesthood was personal. It was about who he was, not who his dad was or his grandparents. Uh, now, as far as the kingship, the genealogy is there. We do have the genealogies for Jesus. Uh, and much is made of that as being in the line of David, which was extremely important. But as for his priesthood, it wasn't a matter of his genealogy. It was a matter simply of who he was uh, and who God appointed him to be. Jesus was not qualified to serve in the, pre in the Levitical priesthood by descent. Uh, he had no priestly pedigree in that regard. He didn't need one. His father appointed him to be the high priest. And ultimately, he was the one to which the Levitical priesthood pointed. As uh, Hebrews 7, uh, 16 tells us Jesus became a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. And the last thing in these first three verses, Melchizedek's priesthood is eternal, not temporary. Now, the Levitical priesthood was temporary. It's temporary on a personal level. If you were of the line of Levi, you could serve, or, or of Aaron, part of the Levitical system, you could serve from age 25 to age 50, and you were through. That was it. But even the whole system itself was temporary, wasn't permanent. Um, with the destruction of Jerusalem in the year 70 by the Romans, that was the end of the system. It, the whole thing came to an end. The synagogue system was already in place, and uh, Judaism lived on by means of the synagogue, the gathering, uh, coming together for teaching, uh, catechesis, uh, discipling, uh, but the, the, the priest, the, the temple was gone, the whole priestly sacrificial system had come to an end. 
And so on a personal level, the priesthood was pretty temporary, just 25 years you served. But then also nationally, the thing came to an end. But Melchizedek has no such boundaries. Verse 3 says he remains a priest forever. doesn't mean so much he lived forever, but it means that that priesthood that he was the symbol of continues. Uh, his order never came to an end as it does with the Levitical system, the descendants of Aaron. And so in that sense, it is a type of Christ's eternal priesthood. Uh, Hebrews 7 verse 24 says he holds his priesthood permanently because he of Jesus because he continues forever. So Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, not Aaron, not Levi, uh, the whole system of, of Israel, but something bigger, just like just like Melchizedek. Now, he's writing to a Jewish, or at least predominantly Jewish, audience. The name of the letter is, after all, to the Hebrews. Those are some pretty big claims to make. When you start talking about the Levites and the priests and all of that. So he offers some proofs, and although these last uh, verses are more numerous, 4 to 10, uh, we can cover them pretty quickly. So he offers some proofs or some reasons as to how and why Melchizedek's priesthood is superior to the Levitical, and therefore Jesus' priesthood is superior. Number one, Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek. Now, for the Jews, Abraham was everybody, was everything, Moses, of course, too. But notice you have Abraham giving a tithe to Melchizedek. Now, he's the great patriarch. He gives a tenth of the plunder of this military rescue campaign that he carries out for Lot, for his nephew Lot. Now, Melchizedek didn't fight with Abraham against Kedoliomer. Uh, we don't have any indication Melchizedek ever performed any priestly service for Abraham. It's just that Abraham, when he encounters Melchizedek, recognizes him as being a true priest, faithful priest of God Most High, and voluntarily gives to him a tenth of the, the spoils as an act of thanksgiving and devotion to God. Now, what are we to make of that? Well, this is his argument. You know, as you read it through Leviticus there, I mean, I'm sorry, through uh, Hebrews chapter 7, uh, those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a command in the law to take tithes from the people from their brothers. He goes through that, but the argument is basically this, if we want to just restate it. This is his argument the writer to the Hebrews is making. Melchizedek's priesthood is greater than the Levitical priesthood because he is greater than Abraham. After all, Abraham offered to him the tithe. Abraham gave to Melchizedek, and Melchizedek is the father of, or rather, Abraham is the father of both Levi and Aaron. So his priesthood is greater than the Levitical priesthood because Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, who himself is the father, ultimately, of Levi and Aaron, those descendants. Now, the Levitical priests in Israel, realize, stick with me here, the Levitical priests normally collected the tithes of God's people and were supported by them. Normally, the priests in the order of Levi received tithes to support that whole worship system and those who maintained it, functioned in it. They received tithes. But the argument here is that they paid tithes to Melchizedek through their ancestor, Abraham. Now, it's kind of an extended argument. You have to kind of be thinking and follow him on that. But his argument is basically this, that the Levites who normally received the tithes of God's people 
paid tithes to Melchizedek through their ancestor Abraham. That's the point that he's making in verses 9 and 10. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him, at least figuratively. He hadn't been born yet, was nowhere near being born yet, but through his ancestor, he was Levi was paying tithes to Melchizedek. So that's basically his, his argument here. Even before they existed, those to whom tithes were paid themselves paid tithes to Melchizedek, and, sh- and so shows Melchizedek's superiority. Again, kind of an extended argument. You've got to follow him on that. But that's his first proof. Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. It wasn't Melchizedek doing honor to Abraham. Second proof that he gives here, Melchizedek blesses Abraham. Now, one of the first things we learn about Abraham uh, in the scriptures that Abraham himself learns from God is that Abraham is blessed by God. And through Abraham, the nations will be blessed. You know, uh, the writer to, uh, or, I'm sorry, the, the, uh, the letter of Galatians, uh, Paul refers to Abraham as the man of faith. Or, or some translations are in believing Abraham, but literally Abraham, to Abraham, the man of faith, uh, Galatians, I believe, 3. But we might also call him the man of blessing, uh, because in verses 1 through 3 of Genesis 12, there's talk of how God is going to bless Abraham, and he's going to make him a blessing uh, to all the nations. So Abraham is the man of blessing. However, when, when Abraham encounters Melchizedek, Melchizedek blesses Abraham. Kind of a, a turnabout. We see this in verses 6 through 7. This man who does not have his descent from the received tithes, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. So Melchizedek blesses Abraham, the man that God gave the promises to, the man who's supposed to be the blessing to everybody else, himself receives a blessing from Melchizedek. So you've got to follow that. Uh, and so the writer of the Hebrews points out, in so doing, verse 7, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Wow. He calls Abraham inferior to Melchizedek. Because Melchizedek blesses Abraham. Bless you, my son. You know, whatever form it took. The point is Abraham is in a, is in a position under Melchizedek. And so that's the argument he's making. Uh, if, if Abraham, if, if Melchizedek is superior to Abraham, then certainly Melchizedek is superior to Abraham's descendants, including Aaron, including Levi, and those. His final proof, Melchizedek's priesthood is eternal. And again, he comes back to this idea of an unending priesthood. Look at verse 8. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, Levites. In the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. Now, Melchizedek didn't live forever. He was a human being. But the point is, we have no record of his death. We don't know. He just seems to appear, and then we don't see him again. And the writer of the Hebrews is picking up on that as, as indicating permanence of Christ's priesthood. And so, as a type, he lives on. Uh, certainly the, the one to whom he points, the Lord Jesus Christ, lives on. And so in that regard, he's superior to Aaron. He's superior to the Levites, who, as we said, had a temporary temporary uh, priesthood, both in terms of personally serving, but also in terms of the institution as a whole. 
So those were his proofs. Uh, Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek. Melchizedek blesses Abraham. Melchizedek's priesthood, unlike the Levites, is an eternal priesthood and so points to the eternal priesthood of Christ. Now, admittedly, those are some somewhat circuitous arguments and proofs that he makes. But that's what he's saying. If you read the chapter carefully, that is exactly what the writer to the Hebrews is saying here. So who has Melchizedek? He's not trivial. Uh, three times he occurs in the scripture indica- over long periods of time, indicating he's an important figure. And certainly here, and uh, he goes on in the remainder of the chapter to talk more about the priesthood specifically uh, that Christ has. But who was he? Well, that's a good question. And we'd answer from Scripture, he was an ancient priest king who was a type of our Lord Jesus Christ. Melchizedek's importance and his greatness lay in that he points us to Christ. Scripture makes much of that. That's a good question. Who was Melchizedek? A better question is, therefore, who is Christ? The one to whom he points. Because if Melchizedek is superior to Abraham, Christ is superior to to Melchizedek, as the reality is to the shadow, as the antitype is to the type. Well, Christ is the reality of whom Melchizedek was but a picture. Christ is the true king priest, the royal priest, the eternal priest, who alone can give righteousness and peace with God. Better question, who is Christ? Best question of all, is Christ your priest? Christ, in the order of Melchizedek, your priest, through your repentance and faith in him. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this passage, uh, difficult in some ways as it is. Uh, Father, help us to get our mind around it. Help us to understand Melchizedek, understand his ministry. But above all, Lord, understand Christ and the ministry that he had and what he did uh, that Melchizedek points us to. And Father, we pray it all in the name of Jesus, our Savior, our King, our Priest. Amen.